Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is episode 48. The issue, are we a democracy? Not all Americans think so. Stay tuned. Former President Donald Trump incited a mob of thugs to storm Congress to prevent Joe Biden from becoming president, even though Biden won the election. Before he was sworn in as our president, Biden discussed what that meant to him. Should they be treated as domestic terrorists? Yes, they should be treated as they're a bunch of thugs, insurrectionists, white supremacists, anti-Semites. Six and is not enough. I mean, come on, you know, these shirts they're wearing? These are a bunch of thugs, thugs, and they're terrorists, domestic terrorists. But the fact is, they should be prosecuted. They should be prosecuted. The difference here is, this had the active encouragement of a city president of the United States. And the difference this time is, everybody, every nation has dealt, every democracy has dealt with individual terrorist attacks by groups that are in very targeted. The largest target was 9-11 and the buildings. Well, right down to blowing up, you know, a bomb going off in the Capitol when I was there, two policemen. But the idea that thousands of people, thousands of people could be marching up the steps of the United States Capitol, breaking windows, breaking doors, forcing their way in, stepping aside, and the photographs of, well, I don't know what the circumstances, the photograph of it looked like you had some of the Capitol Police taking selfies with these people. The damage done to our reputation around the world by a president of the United States encouraging a mob, a mob. This reminded me more of states I've visited in the, over the 100 countries I've gone to in third tin-horn dictatorships. It just cannot be sustained, has to be immediately, immediately investigated in depth, and people have to be held accountable. I want to pick up on something that you just said about President Trump actively encouraging the insurrection at the Capitol. Given that, given the perceived threat that he poses, my question to you is not so much about the role that Congress should play in impeachment, but rather, should President Trump, in your estimation, remain in office? I've been saying for now, well over a year. He is not fit to serve. He is not fit to serve. He's one of the most incompetent presidents in the history of the United States of America. I think that what 81 million people stood up and said, it's time for him to go. And the United States Senate voted 93 to 6 to confirm that we should be sworn in. We were we were duly elected. So I think it's important we get on with the business, getting him out of office. The quickest way that that will happen is us being sworn in on the 20th. What action happens before or after that is a judgment for the Congress to make, but that's what I am looking forward to, him leaving office. I was told that on the way up here, the way over here, that he indicated he wasn't going to show up at the, uh, at the inauguration. One of the few things he and I have ever agreed on. Senators Hawley and Cruz objected to counting the electors to confirm that Joe was president and Kamala Harris was vice president. 
These two senators and others would substitute their desire to have Trump as president for the votes of the millions who voted for Biden. They favored a coup, an unconstitutional seizure of the presidency by the man Trump who lost the election and by a sizable margin, both in the popular vote and the Electoral College. Majority Leader McConnell spoke against these who objected to the results that were irrefutable. First time the Senate convened, we had just reclaimed the Capitol from violent criminals who tried to stop Congress from doing our duty. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. And they tried to use fear and violence to stop a specific proceeding of the first branch of the federal government, which they did not like. But we pressed on. We stood together and said an angry mob would not get veto power over the rule of law in our nation, not even for one night. We certified the people's choice for their 46th president. Tomorrow, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris will be sworn in. We'll have a safe and successful inaugural right here on the west front of the Capitol, the space that President Bush 41 called democracy's front porch. So did Republican Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania. Listen to what Senator Toomey had. I yield up to five minutes to the senator from Pennsylvania, Senator Toomey. Senator from Pennsylvania. Thank you, Mr. President, and I intend later to address the specifics of Pennsylvania if and when an objection is raised with regard to Pennsylvania. For now, I want to address my remarks to what I think is the fundamental question being posed by the objectors. And that is, does Congress have the constitutional authority to decide which state's electoral college votes should be counted and which should not based on how well we think they ran their elections? This is what the objectors are really asking us to do, to federalize elections by rejecting electoral college votes from states whose processes they say they disapprove of, and thereby having Congress select the President of the United States instead of the American people. The answer, Mr. President, is no, there is no such authority under the Constitution. The Constitution assigns to the states the responsibility to conduct elections elections. It's clear in Article 2, Section 1. It leaves courts with the responsibility to adjudicate disputes, and it assigns to Congress the ministerial function of counting ballots, except for extreme circumstances, such as when a state sends competing slates of electors to Congress. Which brings me to the 1877 precedent. Some objectors claim to merely want a commission to conduct an audit and then let states decide whether to send different electors. Well, first, the situations are not at all analogous. In 1877, Congress had before it two slates of electors from several states. Here, there are no Trump electors from swing states. There's just Biden electors. Second, legislatures from the swing states, they've already spoken. They've made their decision. They've chosen not to send us alternative electors. Third, a commission, really? It's completely impractical, and we all know it, with 14 days to go before a constitutionally mandated inauguration. But look at it this way. If the objectors are right, and it really is Congress's job to, to sit in judgment on the worthiness of the state's electoral processes, then what's the criteria 
for acceptable election processes? What investigations have been conducted of these processes? What body has deemed that certain states' processes are unacceptable? What opportunities were these states given to challenge the findings? Why are the objectors objecting only to swing states that President Trump lost? What about the ones he won? I don't know, North Carolina. What, what about California? They have ballot harvesting, I'm told. If this is all supposed to be Congress's job, you'd think we'd have answers to these questions and procedures in place because we would have done this every four years, right? But we don't because it's not our job. If we adopt this new president that we sit in judgment of states' processes, then we're federalizing the election law. We would necessarily have to establish the permissible criteria and rules for the state's elections. The ballot harvesting example. It's illegal in some states. It's encouraged in others. Does it become mandatory or forbidden depending on who's in control of Congress? And as the leader pointed out, it would be the end of the Electoral College. And the Electoral College is the mechanism by which the people select the president. But if Congress gets to decide which states get to vote, in the Electoral College, then clearly Congress is selecting the president, not the people. Whichever party controls both houses of Congress would control the presidency. The public would never tolerate Congress picking the president instead of themselves, so they'd abolish the Electoral College, as many of our colleagues would like to do. And the end of the Electoral College, of course, means the nation will be governed by a handful of big blue states and regions that can drum up very large numbers. Mr. President, the Constitution does not assign to Congress the responsibility to judge the worthiness of state election processes nor its adherence to its rules. That's the responsibility of the states and the courts. Let me conclude with this. I voted for President Trump. I publicly endorsed President Trump. I campaigned for President Trump. I did not want Joe Biden to win this election. There's something more important to me than having my preferred candidate sworn in as the next president, and that's to have the American people's chosen candidate sworn in as the next president. A fundamental defining feature of a democratic republic is the right of the people to elect their own leaders. It's now our duty, it's our responsibility to ensure that that right is respected in this election and preserved for future elections. I urge you, vote against this objection. The House voted for the impeachment resolution that resulted afterwards, treating as a high crime and misdemeanor Trump's words and misconduct inciting an insurrection on January 6th to upturn the presidential election and deny, to deny to Biden and to Kamala Harris the win that the voters had given them. Virginia's Senator Tim Kaine called it a day of infamy and of shame, and there was a chorus of people who did so, both Republican and Democratic. Ten Republican members voted for that impeachment resolution in the United States House of Representatives, the, the People's House. I'm speaking to you on a Sunday, and tomorrow, Monday, the Speaker is sending that resolution for impeachment, for trial, in the United States Senate. But let's look at what's happened to those Republicans, a few of them, in the House 
Representative Peter Meiser was one of those 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment. Steve Bannon, you may remember, he's pardoned by Trump, has promoted a primary challenger to unseat Representative Meiser on his podcast because of his vote for impeachment. Representative Tom Rice is another Republican who voted for impeachment. There is a groundswell to field a primary opponent against Mr. Rice. The former Myrtle Beach mayor, Mark McBride, reportedly said he believed Mr. Trump won the 2020 election when he did not. We have a crisis of critical thinking and a failure to tell the truth in this nation when disinformation is the essential coin of the Republican political realm. Potential challenger McBride reportedly said the president didn't instigate it. The idea of the impeachment trial going to the Senate, Tom Rice created a foundation for it to continue on. Talk about blather. The third ranking member of the Republican caucus, Liz Cheney, who doesn't agree with Democrats on much else but voted for impeachment, is accused of being out of touch, and she now has a primary campaign. All of the Republicans who voted against insurrection and for democracy over autocracy are under siege. The Republican Party is split, and the question is, can Humpty Dumpty be put together again? Like many political campaigns, some Republicans describe the vote on the impeachment resolution as a loyalty test to Trump, rather than the loyalty they owed to the Constitution and the fidelity to their oath of office to preserve and protect our Constitution and the nation, to honor the fact that we are a democracy, and not to try to upend it for some autocratic person, selfish brutal, amoral Trump. This impeachment is therefore about a lot more than holding Trump accountable. It will put Republicans on the spot to declare that what Trump did was impeachable, a failed coup and nothing less. What are the Democrats to do? Perhaps in terms of organization, of how we get along, our model should be like a parliament, form a governing coalition, Democrats with the constitutional wing of the Republican caucus against the mad MAGA caucus wing, a coalition with Democrats, small d, against the coalition of autocrats, traitors to the nation, who have betrayed their oath. This is about our fundamental belief as a nation in democracy over autocracy, and whether this nation will long endure to invoke the question posed by the founder of the Republican Party, Abraham Lincoln, who also famously stated that a house divided cannot stand. The Republicans are plainly divided. The Senate is divided. And legislative paralysis looms as a distinct possibility if we don't find a way to work around this. President Joe Biden has been fighting for unity, but there is a chasm dividing the Republican Party and the nation and dividing part of the Republican Party from the Democrats. Moscow Mitch McConnell, the outgoing majority leader of the Senate, has struggled to affirm that Trump's conduct was impeachable and to create some political distance from Trump for the good of his caucus members and I suppose the party, but he's been a quite discouraging profile without much courage when it comes to leading his caucus or helping to form a government with the Dems. Still, what he said on the floor of the Senate was encouraging. The Republican Party of Kentucky State Central Committee voted yesterday, Saturday, to reject a resolution that called for the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, to condemn the second impeachment trial of former President Trump. McConnell is not doing that, and the state Republican Party won't require it, nor expect it. At the least, McConnell has the support of his party structure in Kentucky. Does he have the support of his caucus? Does he intend to seek it? 
McConnell is keeping his options open, no doubt nose counting, whipping the vote, perhaps secretly, despite what's said publicly. Mitch is also digging in and dragging his feet on the transfer of power to Senator Schumer and the Democratic majority, our majority slim as it is. Biden's stimulus bill is stuck in McConnell's leadership morass. This is just one example of what we can expect going forward. Now that said, Biden pushes forward. He is resolute. After he finished the Jewish deli on Sunday, <laughs> I hope for a bagel and locks with a schmear, he had Democrats and Republicans at the White House to discuss how to move this stimulus bill. How elusive will we find unity to be? It is clear Biden means business. It's what our nation requires to go forward. But we have to put our house in order, and maybe first before anything else happens. In order to appreciate where we are, we have to consider our inauguration, what it took to make it work. We went forward, outside, as planned, and it was a magnificent day for so many reasons. But we cannot ignore that we had more than 24,000 troops in all kinds of thoughtful and imaginative ways to conduct the ritual of transition while assuring safety and almost impenetrable security. We cannot allow ourselves to pretend we need not be vigilant or be prepared to defend with force those enemies within and without who disfavor democracy. This is not going away quickly. There is a far-right coalition of domestic terrorists who do not accept democracy as the ground of our national being. There is a far-right movement across the pond in Europe, and there is communication and support in both directions, to and from America and Europe. The question is, are these associations organizational or just aspirational or inspirational? That's the question. In Germany, after the storming of our capital on January the 6th, there was some belt-tightening security around Berlin's parliament. The core belief of this far-right movement, both here and abroad, is white supremacy, fear of white genocide, and of immigrants. It's interesting, those who seek chaos also simultaneously seek to order their attacks on democracy. For how else can they succeed and have their autocracy with Trump or whatever uh, strong man they prefer after him or from his family. We have fiddled our way through many of the catastrophes that were catastrophes that were characteristic of Trump. That passivity in the past came at a cost. We cannot afford to get this wrong going forward. Marlon Kraft, a rapper, underscored the political truth in his State of the Union. He zeroed in on the Trump tragedy. He said or he sung, or he rapped, <laughs> none of which I'm going to attempt to do. But if a leader more savvy and less sociopathic with true fascist aspirations come along, it's going to be tragic. 74 million proved, if the right rhetoric is used, we could end up on the wrong side of World War II. That's an excerpt. There's more. And you should listen to it. But there is no question that there were so many elements that we had to overcome to come together for Biden to win the election. Efforts small and large made the difference. There had to be an extraordinary effort to work around transparent efforts by Trump and his cronies to suppress the vote, to exclude votes, especially mail-in votes, to curtail the post office from handling mail-in ballots. And from the start, it appears there was even a Republican plan to de declare Trump victorious, no matter the final election results, no matter that Biden won. 
There was a remarkable response, however. Republicans and Democrats in leadership ro uh, roles across the nation recoiled from these anti-democratic practices. Senator Toomey in Pennsylvania was one such elected official. We had judges following the law, voters going the extra mile, crawling over glass to vote, an intent to persist, you heard a great deal, to do whatever it took to assure that their votes for Biden were counted. In today's Washington Post, we're informed what it took for a coalition of union officials, racial justice organizers, civil rights lawyers, and campaign strategists joined together to defend democracy when the system should have performed on its own. But it gave us pause that it would with Trump and the West Wing, that it would happen without any help. They anticipated what Trump would do when he lost. This can't be how we have to go forward in the future. That is, we shouldn't have to fight to undergird our system of elections. We have to assume and be safe to assume the regularity of our voting processes. They were regular, but they were under assault. They probably were the most secure and carefully done, maybe in the history of the Republic. On the horizon, first up, therefore now, is the impeachment of Trump, who sought to overturn the result. Of course, this uh, impeachment is about accountability. But I've, the more I've thought about the word, the more it feels like one of those squirmy words. It's, it's really about guilt and betrayal and sedition and traitorous conduct, about calling out a president for inciting a riot, risking the Republican and the lives of the nation's leaders while some were endangered and others died. Some say, why bother? He left office. Of course, he was impeached while he was in office. Another thing is that impeachment is not just about removal from office. It's also to bar convicted president from ever holding office. Trump has said if he lost this election, he'd run in 2024. So we're on notice that the threat is real. And the remedy is impeachment, because only if convicted by impeachment may we impose by a majority vote in the Senate that he may not run again for public office. But the impeachment is also about what kind of a nation we are. Are we a democracy? Yes, of course you may say. But then what was this challenge to the mere pro forma counting of the electors for Biden and Harris as president and vice president? So what judgment is appropriate then for those members of the Senate who would seek to ignore the results of a presidential election and improve Trump's seditious conduct as innocent? In other words, how do you come by an acquittal of Trump for impeachment. Would censure be enough? I don't think so. Is expulsion just right? I think expulsion is just right. They deny the basic premise of our democracy and betray their oath when they vote not guilty as members of the Senate. So we will have them on record for what they believe, and we will know who the enemy within is without certainty. Persisting, not redeemed, not changed, not uh, evolved, still not democratic. The Senate sits as a jury after taking a vow of impartiality. How impartial can a senator be who agreed in principle with the rioters and was prepared to set aside millions of votes in favor of Trump who lost the election? Six Republican senators objected to certifying Arizona's electoral outcome. Seven objected to Pennsylvania's electoral outcome. In the House, there had been 121 Republican members who objected. That's a lot of people. 
These votes, by the way, occurred after the rioters swarmed Capitol Hill. So they had before them proof positive of the destruction they were causing by the assault on the Hill, and they persisted. So before the riot, there were, 17, there were 14 Senate Republicans. Now, those who stood fed, steadfast in their objection were Ted Cruz of Texas, Josh Hawley of Missouri, Cindy Hyde-Smith of Mississippi, Cynthia Lummis of Wyoming, John Kennedy of Louisiana, Roger Marshall of Kansas, Rick Scott of Florida, and Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. It's hard to say that Tommy is the dumbest of the group, but he's, I think he's hard to surpass. This was no academic exercise. They had been under siege. They had been kept in secure places while the rioters were being cleared from the Capitol. And they still objected, giving aid and support, in my opinion, to the rioters. Among the basic requirements of a trial is the jury be impartial. If I were a House manager for the Democrats, I would support a motion to exclude these seven stalwart senators who stood by their objections to the election of Biden in Arizona and Pennsylvania even after the riot. Their objections failed, as it was never possible they would pass. But the fact that they made the objections and stood by them tells us everything about them, allying themselves with white supremacists, allying themselves with anti-democratic forces, allying themselves with force and violence, aligning themselves with Trump, who never accepted our law or our constitution or regular procedure. By persisting in their objections after the assault on Capitol Hill, they gave aid and comfort to the rioters by persisting in their objections to the votes in Arizona and Pennsylvania. I would argue that Trump has no right to any juror biased in his favor, nor must the House managers suffer jurors who are biased against conviction, have their minds made up from the start. We're not talking about tentative thoughts on it or being recoiling from uh, these acts. We're talking about people who are biased that no matter what you present to them, that's where they're going to be. They shouldn't be able to participate in the deliberations. In addition, there's another factor that we should incorporate in that argument, and I would if I were a house manager, and I don't know what they're going to do because uh, it was kind of a passive pre-trial proceeding the last time we had this go-around with Trump. But we should challenge the right of these senators to sit in the Senate given the prohibition set forth in the 14th Amendment, Section 3 to the Constitution, that provides, quote, no person shall be a senator dot, 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 having previously taken an oath, dot, 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 to support the Constitution of the United States, who shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. At the least, the House members should be permitted to conduct what's called a voir dire, that is to question the senators as to their proclaimed impartiality, how genuine is their oath, and what association and conduct in concert or otherwise they may have had with any element of the rioting mob because we have evidence that it was organized. How to try the case can be somewhat complex and I know there'll be wars in the Senate and the House managers may not get it exactly the way they want, although we have Republicans uh, in the minority by one when we have the vice president vote for what should happen. A threshold question is whether witnesses may be called and who should be called to testify. Now, the House managers should ask for testimony, and they should ask for specific witnesses. There are, of course, various ways to prove that Trump incited the rioters to insurrection. There are witnesses who can say Trump summoned them to the Hill, that he told them 
his election was stolen. And as for coming to D.C., President Trump said to do so. Some said they were brought to D.C. by the direct orders from Trump. I thought I was following what we were called to do. He asked us to fly there. He asked us to be there. So I was doing what he asked us to do. Other rioters have said, I thought I was following my president. Now, we'd have to identify certain witnesses, and that might require the cooperation of the FBI, who's identified these people who have these statements to make. But we also have Trump's own tweets. On December 19th, Trump tweeted, <clears throat> big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. Will be wild. On New Year's Day, Trump tweeted, the big protest rally in Washington, D.C. will take place at 11 a.m. on January the 6th. Location details to follow. Stop the seal, steal. What he's talking about is the steal of his election. He claimed it was a steal. No proof, no court, no state, no legislature, no recount favored him. Yet that's what he's saying. Stop the seal. Of course, Trump's own words on the day of the riots, a 70-minute screed, are the strongest evidence against him, as admissions always are. His declaration that, quote, we won this election and we won it by a landslide. And our country's had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. To use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal, he said. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president. And you are the happiest people. But if Pence allowed the vote to go forward, Biden would become president, he said. We're just not going to let that happen, he said. Inciting the crowd in the strongest terms, saying you will never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. He said he'd march with them to the Capitol, but he didn't. He's a coward and a liar. He should be called as a witness. So should his son, also his counsel, Rudy. All three incited the rioters to charge Capitol Hill. You could be sure all three coordinated those appearances, may have discussed them beforehand and afterwards. I've referred to them as the three amigos. Maybe friendly to each other, but not to our form of government. Don Jr. said he'd be in the congressional districts that didn't support the Trump party. And already those Republican House members who voted for impeachment, they're facing primary challenges and criticism. There's no report that Don Jr. has appeared in their districts yet. He said to the rioters gathered around as he spoke, you can be a hero or a zero. He also said, we're coming for you. Rudy Giuliani, Trump's lawless mouthpiece, said, Let's have trial by combat. Now there's a collection. Is that incitement to riot? I think so. And there's plenty more evidence. Testimony uh, means in a Senate trial, and this is what they'll likely decide, not that someone will sit in the well of the Senate and be questioned, but they're deposed and that deposition is presented to the Senate. The senators may vote on whether to have testimony and how it may be produced to the Senate. So I can't predict right now because I haven't seen the rules for this trial. That may be published tomorrow, Monday, or sometime in the days ahead before the trial is to begin, obviously. There will be briefs and so forth exchanged at the outset of the trial and requests for how it should proceed. No doubt from published reports, Trump will charge that his intent was innocent. Now, when somebody says, I'm not that kind of person, or I didn't do that, or so forth, uh, you can produce prior acts of misconduct that rebut, refute that you have innocent intent. 
That's why the impeachment resolution anticipated this and cited Trump's, quote, prior efforts to subvert and obstruct the certification of the results of the 2020 presidential election. There's a host of examples, but one that's easily confirmed and among the most recent reveals his desperation. It's that phone call on January the 2nd, 2021, days before the riot on the Hill, when Trump urged the Secretary of the State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, to find enough votes to overturn the Georgia presidential election results, giving him just one more vote than the margin by which Biden had actually beat Trump. Cute. Trump threatened Raffensperger on that phone if he failed to do so. We need a person from that call to authenticate the call, and Raffensperger may not be the best witness to to testify based on some public statements he's made. But the episode rebuts any innocent intent Trump might assert. Nor is this the end of the matter. Remember Senator Lindsey Graham, he also had conversations with Raffensperger. He took criticism for it, and apparently he was trying to convince Raffensperger to do something to facilitate a Trump win. But Raffensperger, he resisted. He wasn't having any of it. Senator Lindsey Graham should be called as a witness. There's evidence that Trump conspired with the Department of Justice Deputy Jeffrey Clark in the Civil Division to replace the acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen and to use the department's power to force Georgia state lawmakers to overturn its presidential election results. Rosen had refused to do what Trump wanted, so he was going to get Clark to do it. Rosen is the honest broker here, and he should be called as the witness. Clark denies the charge once it was published in the New York Times, but Rosen has other instances of Trumpian coercion, and that's why Rosen should testify, because it will put to rest any innocent intent that may be claimed about inciting the riots to insurgents, to uh, insurrection. And you have to wonder if former A.G. Barr left DOJ because he couldn't stomach what he knew Trump planned to do. I think in one of my TV interviews I said just that, but... Uh, you know, you don't have to be a genius to figure out what these criminals do. It's kind of like, uh, hold my beer. And the bar didn't want to be the guy standing there holding the beer when Trump probably already explained to him what he wanted members of justice to do and what he wanted Barr to do. Of course, winning Georgia lawfully or unlawfully wouldn't help him win the electoral vote contest, but the reversal could add some steam to his intended wild rally on January the 6th because it would give some credence that one state had reversed itself because the numbers for Georgia weren't going to overcome the electoral vote. It wouldn't be enough. So the House should assert as part of its evidence that Trump was impeached when he was in office. Yes, it's obvious and it may be conceded and it may be stipulated, but this is one of these kind of jurisdictional things because there's going to be pushback legally that, well, he's not in office now, so how can you impeach him? Well, he was in office when he was impeached. And he has said he has plans to come back and run in 2024. And I think they have to put that in evidence as well, because it justifies why having an impeachment continued when you're put on office, he's going to run for office, particularly this office, and you want to be able to have the jurisdictional basis to bar him from holding public office ever again. At a White House Christmas party on Tuesday, the president hinted that he will run again if his legal efforts fail. Now, uh, there are other things I see, you know, and I, I probably, if you let me, I could go on a very long time. But Republicans may object that there were no witnesses in the House. Then why do you expect to have witnesses in the Senate? Well, let's roll this back again. 
Impeachment is a little like what we prosecutors do when we indict someone. Uh, it's presented to a grand jury. Some places all you have to do is sign an affidavit of the material facts, and that's sufficient to issue uh, the equivalent of an indictment or charge or an information against the defendant. Now, you may or may not present much testimony before a grand jury. And in most cases, you can present hearsay. You can ask one agent to talk in a federal grand jury. You can ask an agent to tell what he heard from whom and whatever and offer some exhibits. It's not a very well detailed or complex presentation. There are investigative grand juries that do a lot more. So the trial, in a normal case, is when you present evidence, evidence that you got, that you may have summarized before a grand jury, that you had available, and you may not put before a grand jury any witness that in fact then appears at the trial. Now, some of us like to lock in some people, particularly targets and subjects if they agree to appear before the grand jury and to waive any uh, Fifth Amendment right because they want to persuade us in the grand jury that they're innocent. In some cases, that works. <clears throat> now, so the Republicans may object that Trump is not in office now, but he was president when impeached, and the remedy is to convict him and to bar him from holding public office again, as he's indicated that he's thinking about doing. Talk about a clear and present danger. That's Trump. Now, there are those who want this all to go by fast and act as if this is a concern subordinate to a functioning government and other problems we have. Well, in a modern world, every government has amazing problems. And we have to find a way to create uh, PERT diagrams and Gantt charts to get everything done. This can be done. This needs to be done. It's a predicate to a constitutional government that supports democracy. And it will help us thin the herd of the enemies within our government, identify them and thin them out. Now, what we don't need is some half-assed show trial when we have enough Senate votes to assure a full and fair trial that the nation needs to hear. Don't you come back no more. So, uh, that's my wrap for this podcast. Uh, I hope this is helpful uh, for your understanding, and I, I expect between my <laughs> walk and talks in the next podcast, there'll be more to explain. So thanks for listening. Uh, I'll talk to you next week on Sunday. In the meantime, subscribe if you haven't already. Be well. All the best. Bye-bye. Don't you come back.